Hi, I'm Mackenzie Bagan, and this is 112BK. Coming up, during the de Blasio administration, as crime has continued to fall to historic lows, the NYPD's gang database has jumped by 70%. And even by the department's own accounting, its makeup is troubling. African-American, 65%. White Hispanic, 24%. Black Hispanic, 10%. Approximately 95% people of color. We'll talk with two social justice advocates about the effort to stop the practice some refer to as Stop and Frisk 2.0. From my understanding, it's not, it's not unlawful to be in a gang. So if it's not against the law, why are we keeping a record of people that are in gangs? If anything, I think police work should be done in real people's time. Hi, welcome to the show. Earlier this year, The Intercept reported that 42,334 individuals were on the NYPD's gang database, officially the criminal group database. And almost all of those listed, at least 95%, are people of color. This is striking for a number of reasons, but unfortunately not surprising given the racial disparities in police practice documented over the last half dozen years. Of course, this raises all kinds of questions, like... How do they define gangs and gang members? And how is this list being used by the department? What other resources can be used to circumvent gang violence? To help us answer some of these questions and to talk about what's being done to introduce transparency into the department's use of the database, we're joined by Josmar Trujillo. Welcome to 112BK. Hi, how are you? And Taylon Murphy, an activist whose family has had a complicated and tragic relationship with gangs. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So many people may not know about this gang database. Can you just tell us, give us an overview, Josmar, about what it is exactly? The NYPD has a secret list of individuals that they have labeled gang members or gang related. Very few people know about the list and those who are on it, most of them probably don't even know that they're on it. And so basically, with the last couple of years, we've worked hard to expose this kind of big data way of collecting names and then using those names down the line to create associations for these kind of complex conspiracy and sometimes federal charges that police and prosecutors use when they launch uh, large-scale sweeps. And how does somebody end up on this list? How does the NYPD determine whether or not you're a gang member? A lot of these young people end up on this list. It's, it's, It's very broad. I mean, the criteria is extremely vague. You have uh, places where young people hang out at, different colors that they wear. It might be a bodega that they might um, frequent. A lot of labeling and a lot of identifying these young people are due to the housing developments that they live in and the people that they, they're around and that they hang out with. And usually there's, they're, those are friends that they grew up with. So I think that the criteria for identifying a lot of these individuals are very, is very, very broad, very broad, very broad. Right. The police are not going up to people and being like, hey, are you a gang member? Can we add you to our list, right? I mean, they say that they have some sheets, that they have some briefings and debriefings where they bring young people in and ask them, are they a part of gangs? But even in that, I mean, that's even very broad and vague as well. Mm-hmm. The New York Police Department defines a gang or criminal group, this is a definition from one of their presentations, as a group of persons with a formal or informal structure that includes designated leaders and members that engage or are suspected to engage in unlawful conduct. Is that is that what you've heard from the NYPD as well? Well, at the, at the last city council hearing on this issue, 
the police department admitted that you don't have to actually have a criminal record or criminal or contact with the criminal justice systems to end up on the database. So it doesn't really necessarily line up with that particular definition. The definition is basically what the NYPD makes of it. Mm. Um, you know, that definition uh, could in some ways be applied to uh, a football team or, uh, you know, the New York Yankees, music groups. Um, if any one person or if a few people have had a crime committed amongst them, they can be used with that kind of definition to implicate and associate everybody in it. Right. It's an extraordinarily broad definition, but we see it not being applied to fraternities, for example, but we see it being applied overwhelmingly to people of color. Yes. Can I ask you both a little bit about what drew you to this work? Maybe we can talk with you, Josmar. You know, in 2014, the NYPD started to not only launch these like large-scale sweeps, they had one in, in the west side of Harlem where there were over 100 people indicted, and they were also doing a lot of public relations, really going to the media and telling them that these are the worst of the worst. This is our, this is what we're doing now. We're actually going after the real bad guys, kind of admitting in a way that the era of stop and frisk was this huge mistake for them. And so they really started to push it. And I remember, you know, growing up in the 90s um, when there was, uh, you know, there were what you would call traditional gangs like the Latin Kings and the Nietas that I wanted to be a part of when I was younger and a lot of my peers did. So I know that what the NYPD was doing was trying to criminalize people in the eyes of the public. And I knew that a lot of the people who actually even were gang involved had very complex and more nuanced ways to get there. And I know that criminalizing people and telling the public that these are the worst of the worst, that these are savages, that these are goons, that these are thugs, reminded me also of uh, stuff that I remembered from the early 90s with the drug war and uh, the days of uh, the super predator kind of demonization of young black men. For me, I saw the writing on the wall and I decided to get involved, not only as a young person who had been, you know, my peers had been gang involved and I had wanted to be in a gang, knowing what it takes to, to feel that way, mm-hmm. but also to get out ahead of what the police department was going to be doing for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. And Taylon, we mentioned that your family um, has a tragic story related to gangs. Would you share why you are doing this activist work? Well, I, I actually got involved with this work before because uh, my daughter was actually killed due to uh, two misguided individuals that were a part of uh, another housing development other than what she, where she lived at. She lived in Grant. She was a star basketball player. Um, actually, her high school, she went to Bishop Lachland, not too far from here. She was killed by two misguided individuals. And in 2014, after two trials that you know, my family had to endure, there was this raid June 4th, 2014, a gang raid of the West Harlem. And it took 103 individuals, arrested 103 individuals. I had gotten a call that morning saying that, um, you know, this happened behind what happened to my daughter. And I said that was totally false, you know, because the two individuals that actually killed my daughter had already been tried, arrested, tried, convicted, and were serving time upstate. And I felt that it was very odd that a police department, the police department would do that and execute this type of raid and blame it on these murders, especially on a murder that already had been solved. And ironically, the two young individuals that actually committed the crime were not added to the indictment. So I had to go out and actually tell the community that I wasn't supporting this kind of action, that I didn't think that the whole community should be vilified over two individuals' decisions. A bad decision, so to speak. I'm so sorry for what your family went through. Thank you. Thank you. So maybe you can respond, uh, Just Marta. You mentioned that there's been sort of a PR campaign to say, no, this is actually helping communities. Only bad people are on this list. What do you say 
uh, in response to that, that the people on this list have, have done something wrong and deserve to be there. What's the saying about you don't learn from history, you're doomed? I think people, if they look back at the history of law enforcement, they always come out and say that this is the this is the worst of the worst, that these are the really bad people, that they really deserve what's coming to them. And they use that because there are there is of course still violence in New York City, right? The the the, the shootings and the murders are not at zero. They're at record lows. Um, but they're really trying to kind of stay keep us in that point of view or in that mindset where we have to throw every we have to throw a certain number of individuals above, under the bus to achieve public safety. And so I, I you know we we've called it oftentimes the the re, you know the reincarnation of the super predator era uh, because we want to link it with that those military style sweeps those uh, large scale conspiracy indictments um, and the fact that this is overwhelmingly black and Latino men. I mean, these have all the hallmarks of all the things that we already know were destructive and ultimately misguided from the 80s and 90s and even before then. So this is history repeating itself. The only difference is there really have you learned to use the gang label mm -hmm. as a way to take people's critical thinking out of it and say, well, you know what, yeah, those are the worst. And I, they do deserve to be thrown in prison. And can, and can I add on, I mean, um, crime is historically at a historical low right now. And to keep the criminal justice system actually moving, you definitely need bodies. And I see this as a way of keeping that, that machine going and using these young people as the oil and the gas that, that keeps it running. I, I believe that there's alternatives to actually doing these gang raids. There, there are people that can go out there, credible messengers and other people. They have a cure violence program. They have other initiatives that can actually go out and reach these young people and actually change their way of thinking. At, you know, from my understanding, it's not, it's not unlawful to be in a gang. So if it's not against the law, why are we keeping a record of people that are in gangs? You know, if anything, we should be, um, I think police work should be done in real people's time. And not shouldn't be done by surveilling individuals or surveilling a community or even vilifying a community. If you see something happening, they say if you see something, say something. But if you see something happening, you don't allow it to happen. And then you go and arrest individuals or you don't let it happen to keep fueling uh, a fire. You actually use water to put a fire out, not fire. Mm. So. I mean, I, I just look at it as a, a, a means of keeping the system going. And also, um, we have to remember that it's a $6 billion police budget. And they have, to, they have to be able to account for what they're doing to keep having that same type of money coming to the department. Right. And critics are saying that this is just sort of replacing stop and frisk. And that as police departments are having stop and frisk policies declared unconstitutional, this is really just sort of doing the same thing by criminalizing being young, black and brown and poor. Is that an accurate reading, would you say? <clears throat> I mean, the overcriminalization is always a theme of the police department in New York City. Uh, but the big difference here is that where you, if you were stopped and searched and embarrassed on the street, you're going to go home or you may have a ticket or you may spend a night in jail for whatever reason. But the consequences are much, much higher when you're being virtually stopped and frisked or, or criminalized uh, in, in, a gang, in the gang policing way. Because when they come for you, you're going away for a very long time. You're not just being embarrassed on the street. You're actually going to be in prison for a very long time. And your family members um, are going to go through a devastating experience. And then when you come out, you know, many years later, you may not even have a place to live at because you may be excluded from living in public housing. So the consequences are incredibly high. Um, and so that way, I think it's much, much more dangerous than stopping first ever was. And, and could I chime in? I'm, I'm totally against the policy and how they're rolling out this policy because 
these statues, these conspiracy statues that we speak of, were really um, designated for organized crime. And these young people are not people that have the capacity to actually understand really what's going on with themselves, let alone what, what they're doing in the community. Yes, they do need to be held accountable when they do things wrong, but also we need to get ahead of the curve. We gotta get ahead of the ball. We can't wait until the things happen and watch them happen and then round up 103, 104, 120 young people and put them away for the rest of their lives. I don't, I don't think that that's correcting anything. I don't think that's fair. I think that is breeding more angry and hurt broken people as opposed to getting them while they're young and starting to, to nurture them and cultivating their minds and, and tapping into the greatness that all these young people have. So let's talk big picture a little bit. So you find yourself on this database. You have no idea how you ended up there. You have no idea if you're on the database at all. Is that right? Yes. There's no, you can't request for that information. And that allows the police to start surveilling you. Is that, is that right? Police can always surveil you. I mean, police, people will be surprised how little restraint there is around policing in New York City. You're not gonna know that you're on a database. If you'd like to know, you can file a Freedom of Information request through Legal Aid's Community Justice Unit. That's one thing uh, that they've started uh, to try to help facilitate people, try to get answers. Now, the police department is notorious and not uh, properly or, or quickly responding to FOIA requests, but there is a legal way that you can try to get that information. Um, but just being on the database is not what leads to, to surveillance. It's one piece of it. It's one way that they catalog it. Mm -hmm. But I think if we're talking also big picture, I mean, we also have to look at this beyond just the database, right? The cataloging of names is wrong, I think, to, have, to allow a police department to have a secret list. But it's the, everything that goes around it. It's all of the years that, that people are building those cases. So it's not just a name on a list, but they're building cases, making associations, and really loading up these charges for when they come down and, and execute a sweep, you're going to be in a legal predicament that you have, especially if you don't have John Gotti-type lawyer, right, a million-dollar lawyer, uh, you're going to be in over your head fighting. Um, this is why we see a lot of plea deals. And so all of the surveillance, all of the misuse of uh, conspiracy laws, and then all of the years and years and years of incarceration where people are being thrown in, into an environment where maybe if they weren't in gang life before then, now they are mm -hmm. ex further exposed to gang life, being in Rikers Island or being in, in, in another place. So all in all, it's, it's much bigger than the database. The database just allows us to kind of get that entry point to get people to think maybe it's wrong that the police department do this and then here is this entire universe of consequences that come with it that we are okay with allowing a certain group of people because the police claim that they're gang involved. Right. And there's questions that I have as well about the database because we know that a high percentage, 90, over 90 percent of the young people that are on the database or the people that are on the database is black and Latino. Now I know about a couple of weeks ago we had an incident in uh, Manhattan where you had a, a, a crew or, or a group called the Proud Boys that came and beat up some protesters. Now, are the Proud Boys on the database? Are you telling me that this database is only significantly uh, a setup for people of minorities or people of color? I mean, it, to me, it's, it's, it's just a civil rights issue. It's an issue that needs to be dealt with. It's um, something that needs to be reformed or even done away with, mm -hmm. you know, because like I said earlier, if they say there's no uh, law against being in a gang, then why have a database? And then why have a database that is so uh, secret that nobody can't even see it? Or you don't even know how you got on it? Or you don't know how to get off of it? I mean, it's just, it's just too many things that are just 
wrong with what's going on with this database. And I've learned that things that are done in, a, in secret usually have, there's a big issue with it. There's a reason they're done in secret. Yes. Yeah. yes. And yes. I want to come back to um, this Intercept article. So there's a link to a New York, P New York Police Department presentation about signs that somebody might be in a gang. And it includes um, colors. People might wear gang-affiliated colors. And the colors that are listed are black, gold, yellow, red, purple, green, lime green, blue, white, brown, khaki, gray, and orange. Um, so I, I also wonder if, you know, if a, a white gentleman in a nice lime green polo is being treated the same way as um, a young man of color. Uh, <laughs> I think we all know the answer to that. Um, and I just think moving further, I mean, we're looking at just one list, mm -hmm. this one gang database list. There are many lists. And how do we know that there are many lists? If this one list is secret, how many more secret lists are there? Or how many more lists are these agencies keeping? Especially with the sign of the times and what's going on with our country now. There's a lot of people that are against what's going on with the government. Is there a list that, that lists these people that are against the government? I mean, I just think that you, you need to nip things in the bud that aren't transparent. Right. I want to come back a little bit to sentencing because you talked about if you don't have a John Gotti lawyer, they're essentially being charged with John Gotti crimes uh, with you know racketeering and conspiracy. Is that right? So once you find yourself on this gang database la list, the NYPD can go to the DA presumably and say, well, this isn't just a low-level criminal; they're involved in a larger network. Is that something that you guys are seeing? Yeah. And that and that happens way before <laughs> the the actual sweep. So the prosecutors, and Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance is probably the most involved of all of them. He has his own secret list and he has his own kind of infrastructure for specifically this type of policing. They are working on this for years ahead. In, in, the, in the Manhattanville and Grant case, we had heard and I had read reports that people were being surveilled for four or five years. And then, you know, that means that they were teens, maybe middle school age when they were being uh, surveilled. So these cases are being built for years and years. So when the actual raid is executed, there's already been, I mean, it's signed, sealed, and delivered. They're just putting a bow on it. And so, you know, this stuff is, uh, you know, the, the raid people see it, but a lot of that stuff has already happened years and years before. And that's why it's no surprise to us that we saw that there were 13-year-olds on the database that the NYPD has admitted. I mean, they, they don't tell the names, but they'll say they have to admit it, that they have actual 13-year-olds on there. So. Mm -hmm. The, the prospects of you being maybe 18 years old, 17, 19 years old, and you're looking at amazing amounts of time, and you're also put in the situation where, you know, you may take a plea deal, you may cooperate with the government to say something about something someone you were with that isn't even true because you you can get your sentence dropped from 25 years to 15 or 10 years, and people are going to take that and say anything because of the police. And this is a larger problem with prosecution, but in these types of prosecutions, it's even more pronounced because these defendants know that they're really in over their heads because of what conspiracy and RICO allow prosecutors to do. They don't necessarily have to prove I, you know, I'm on camera committing a crime. It's just the mere association that I was involved or I had knowledge of it, right? We were all involved in conspiracy. That's all that they have to prove to a jury that for, for most parts are going to believe what anything, anything is said about these guys because all you have to do is say that magic word, gang. Mm -hmm. And then even the due process, even through the due process and through even the bail, once you're labeled as a gang member, your bail goes up, you know, extraordinary. Mm -hmm. I mean, or no bail, or no bail at all. Just to have the label is just a stigma 
dealing with the criminal justice system. And like Joe Smart said, you have young people, 13, 14, 15, that are on this gang database and you build these long conspiracy cases and you allow a lot of collateral damage. You allow a lot of things to happen that may not have happened if you weren't looking to do this type, execute this type of policing and this type of prosecuting. Mm -hmm. So, I, I, like I said, it, it's, it's definitely a big issue, and it's one that we must really take seriously and really have to, you know, buckle down and deal with. Absolutely. And the Intercept article mentioned that 8% of the people, um, according to their reporting, were under the age of 18. should note that the NYPD disputes that figure, says that it's around 2%, and actually disputes the entire number of people on the database. They say that it's more around 17,000. What explains that discrepancy? Who do we trust? How can we verify this? <laughs> There's no oversight over the police department. We've asked the uh, NYPD Inspector General to, to, to conduct an audit or review of this. So the NYPD is basically operating in the shadows. No one knows, and so no one can dispute these numbers. They claim that they had a big purging of names when, when they had uh, a change in administration under the Blasio, but no one, no one can verify that, right? Like, no one can verify what the NYPD says. So they can say that they have, uh, you know, aliens on the, on the database and there's no way of verifying it. The NYPD operates for their interest best when there is little to no oversight. This is the one area of policing there is not anything to challenge or at least verify anything the police department does. So in this regard, they are completely unshackled and unregulated. What happens, say you're a 13-year-old who maybe has been involved in a gang and by 17, you're out of the gang. How do you get your name off the database? No one knows. No one knows. No one knows. Like I said before, no one knows how he, you know, got on the database. So how do you know how you, you get off the database? And my thing is, is if this database is so cut, clean, and, and, and clear, why don't the NYPD, why don't the mayor, why doesn't the uh, in inspector general, why don't they answer our questions? I mean, we're only asking questions as concerned citizens and asking questions as, as people that are concerned about our community and the communities at large. Why not answer these questions on how do you get on this database? How do you get off the database? Why is it not clear who's on the database? Mm -hmm. You know, because if I have to know if I'm on the database to be able to get off the database. I just, it just doesn't make sense. And we're just having, you know, we're going around and around and around in circles asking these questions that are not being answered. And we're willing to sit across the table and, and listen to, you know, concrete answers and tangible evidence, tangible documents to say that this is how we do things and this is our procedure. And that's not really being done. And, and there's also something to be said about the types of police officers that work on this sort of policing. The police officers in the gang unit and the ones who are really beating the quote-unquote intelligence for this type of policing these are some of the most aggressive, most gung-ho, most cowboy police officers in the department. Professor Howe often makes a point to say that these officers, even if they go through bias training, their line of work re-biases them, and they're out looking for gang members. And so, you know, the imagination is an amazing thing, right? If you're a police officer and you're out there and you're out there hunting gang members, right, and that's your, th that's your thing, you're going to see gang members everywhere, whether if I post something on social media, it just says me and my crew, right, I just say something, or if you, you see me down the street with a certain person and give me a handshake, they are in a mentality where they are looking for gang members, and so they see it everywhere. So tell me a little bit about what you're demanding as activists and community organizers. What would you like to see done? I would like to see more transparency. 
I like to see young people that when they come in and 13 and they are accused of being in gang in a gang or labeled as a gang member, maybe have some type of notification to their parents or, or have some type of parental guidance in these um, debriefings, which I've heard that there haven't been any or little to any in these debriefings. So I think the whole thing of transparency would make, I think, us more comfortable knowing what is really going on. And I also, I mean, me, I'll take it a little further. If it's, if it's not a crime to be in a gang, you know, and, is, and as long as this organization, street organization, is not doing any unlawful, unruly or unlawful acts, why have the database at all? You know? Yeah. The, the city should abolish the database. I don't think there's any scenario that I can imagine where the police department wouldn't abuse keeping a secret list. I mean, we don't keep secret lists of people based on their their gender or their sexual orientation or their political affiliation. Uh, so why have the police in charge of this space? I think abolishing it is, I think, for us, a, 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 a fundamental demand. Mm -hmm. But also, I think to the larger to the larger issue, we, we you know we talk a lot about people who are maybe unfairly ensnared in this stuff, or innocent people, or people who are only minimally involved. We also have to take a look at just the larger issue of gangs and why they exist, and really understand all of the social factors. Tay Lauren talks about this all the time: the poverty, the, the the turning the back on those these communities by the city for decades and generations, and what leads someone to take that take that take that uh, path in life. And I think understanding and humanizing even the quote-unquote bad guys, I think is an important step for people to start to see the bigger Absolutely. picture. Yes. Joss Martillon, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. That's the show for today. Tomorrow, Brian Vines will be back and talking with an advocate for an intact body, meaning he's opposed to circumcision and working to put an end to the practice. Hope you can check it out. This episode of 112BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. The show is written and series produced by Ross Tuttle. Fred Brown is senior producer. Shireen Bargi is our digital journalist. And Isabel Alcantara is the associate producer. It is recorded in studio by Eric Hagaseg, Clinton Filson Jr., and Antonio M. Rosario. Ayn Van is the production assistant. The show is edited by Mira Al-Rahim. Alexander Pointzolo is our post-production supervisor. And Emily Bogosian is our post-producer. Today's segment was produced by Sriyanka Ray. Executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. <laughs>